Well, good morning, Lakeview. Thank you, Adam, choir, worship team, and band for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the Word. Just want to say something about VBS this morning. We were, as a family, blown away uh, by VBS. We are so grateful for all of you who were involved in VBS, and the gospel was so clearly proclaimed to our young people. Some of you are here that are visiting. Perhaps uh, your children were involved in VBS, and you don't have a church family. I would love to meet you after the service, Uh, but I just, again, want to thank everyone that was involved uh, with VBS this week. A lot of work was put into that, and we are grateful for that. If you would turn in your Bible to Colossians 1, as Brother Al has already said, we're looking at verses 15 to 20. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and get this, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, one of those great passages centering on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as the word is preached this morning, we come to you in and through Jesus and by his spirit and we ask that your spirit would grant us illumination on Christ's sufficiency, his preeminence, his glory. We ask this for his sake. Amen. In the 1950s, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and had a national radio show, and he asked his audience on this particular morning, what would things look like if Satan took control of a city? Now, there's a variety of ways you can answer that question. And all of you have ideas of what that would look like. But his answer was quite provocative. He said all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing... The children would say, yes, sir, and, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday 
where Christ is not preached. Now think about that. A Christless morality produced by a Christless pulpit. Now we as image bearers, image bearers of God, are hardwired for the Son of God. We saw that in our text. All things were created for Him. Which means we are hardwired for Him. But in our fallenness, if Jesus Christ is not recognized as Lord by each one of us, we will find necessarily a Christ replacement. We've been hardwired for him. Our hearts were created for him, constituted for him. And so if Christ is not Lord of our lives, we will find a Christ replacement. Nature abhors a vacuum. And whatever we commit to in an ultimate way, and that is our Christ replacement, it will have a cascading effect in every aspect of our lives. It will pour out into our beliefs, our feelings, the way we feel about things, our actions, and our values. Now, in the above scenario, the ultimate commitment seems to be self which means self-salvation is at the core, self-transformation, self-justification. But that kind of approach to life, not only is it fruitless, it eclipses the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, all things were created for him. And it communicates to the world that we don't really need the Son of God. Now, to make matters worse, That's the default position of every single one of us. Unless we're filled with the Spirit, unless we're walking in the Spirit. That's the default position of every single one of us. And that's why it is vital that we stare at the glory of God in the face of Christ and His supremacy every day and often in order to do battle with our default setting. Over the next seven weeks, as Brother Al has mentioned, he and I are going to be considering those great texts, what many call Christological texts, that center on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the glory of God in Jesus Christ is the only true agent of transformation. It's the only true agent. And even the devil knows that. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, listen to these words. The God of this world, that's the devil, and he believed in a personal devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's the state of every unbeliever. Their eyes are blinded, note, to keep them from seeing the light, the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That is the state of the unbeliever, and it's our state in our default setting when we're not walking in the Spirit. This means that in order to counteract the devil's work, and that is his principal work, we must determine to behold the glory of God in Jesus 
every day of our lives. Paul was concerned with this very thing in Colossae. Uh, In Colossians 1, later in the passage, he says, You were alienated and hostile in your mind by evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you through the body of his flesh, through death, if indeed you continue in the faith and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. He was concerned that they were drifting from the gospel hope. They weren't beholding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so his anecdote is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. In this passage, he sets forth one of the most glorious expositions in all of Scripture on the supremacy and the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see here in verse 15 to 17, Paul tells Colossae and Paul tells Lakeview that Christ is supreme in creation. Look with me in verse 15. He writes, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is a tricky and potentially confusing description of Jesus. Because you well know, as a church that believes Genesis 1, that God created humanity as his image bearers. And elsewhere, Paul will describe us as God's image bearers. Indeed, it's very interesting that the word image here comes in a section where he is speaking about the son's relation to the original good creation. And the first thing he says about the son is that he is the image of God. He uses the language that was used of Adam and Eve. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve sinned against God, but they didn't lose the image. But the image, the capacity to image God was distorted by sin. Which means we still image him, but in our flesh and in our sin state, we bear false witness against him as we image him. And so Paul will use the language of restoring the restoration of the image to describe our salvation. If you look just over one page to Colossians 3, verse 10, notice how Paul uses this language. He says, he says in Colossians 3:10, you have put on the new self, that is Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge, notice, after the image of its creator. And so we are being conformed into the image of of our creator, and Paul says in Colossians 1, the agent of this creation is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the perfect image bearer. He is the believer's template for what we will be. But in so saying that, is Paul saying that Jesus is less than divine? Is Jesus just a human, just a man? Well, no. Because Paul is about to say in verse 16 that Jesus is the one in whom the world was created. And every good and knowledgeable Jew of that day sitting in that audience would have known 
that only God is the creator of all things. In fact, that makes sense of what Paul writes here when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You know, Scripture makes clear that God by nature is invisible. So what hope is there in believing in a God who's invisible, in knowing this God? Well, the answer is Jesus. You know, Philip longed to see God. He longed to know God. He said in John 14, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus responded to Peter or, or Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In fact, earlier in John 1, John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he calls Jesus God there, he has made him known. With that said, is Paul's emphasis here on Jesus' humanity or on his divinity, his deity? The answer is yes. He's emphasizing both. So why is Jesus' humanity so crucial for us? Well, there's so many reasons. But in this particular letter, it's to restore the image of God that Adam bore but was defaced by sin. That's salvation. God is restoring in Jesus our image through the perfect image bearer. But why is his deity so important? Well, contextually, only God can save. Isaiah 43, 11. Jesus has to be God because only God can save. But secondly, if Jesus were not God, then he could not be the revelation of God. And that's what Paul is telling us in the text. The Son images the Father in terms of moral character in terms of his will, in terms of his attributes. He is equal in essence and power and glory with the Father. But if that is true, it seems at first glance to conflict with the second part of verse 15. Notice, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, at first glance, this may seem to agree with the Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine that Jesus was the first and greatest of all created things. But that's to ignore the context. Again, Jesus is the creator of all, so he cannot be a part of the creation. In fact, in verse 16, Paul is actually going to say that that's what it means to be the firstborn over all creation. He created all things. Actually, this language of firstborn was a code word in the Old Testament for the coming Messiah. And anybody who knew their Old Testament in Colossae would have known that. So, for instance, in Isaiah 89, David is speaking about the covenant that God made with him that through his offspring, a son would come who would be the hope of the world. And in Isaiah 89, 27, I will appoint him my firstborn, God says, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So this is the Lord speaking about David's far-off son who would come, the firstborn, the greatest of the kings of all the earth. So he is the heir 
of all things. And he is the most exalted of, of all kings. Indeed, notice in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. He's talking about here angels, the angelic realm, or rulers or authorities. Jesus is the agent of creation, the Son of God. He's the artisan of all things. Now, it's easy to gloss over that because most of us that have been at Lakeview here for a long time, you've read this verse over and over again. It's easy just to, to be almost indifferent to that, that truth that he's the agent of all things. But think about our created order. Consider just the size of the universe that Paul says Jesus, the Son of God, created. The sun has a diameter of 865,000 miles. That's 109 times the size of the earth, which means if you were to line up 109 earths end to end, it would stretch across the face of the sun. And yet, despite the size of the sun, the sun is considered, it's called a yellow dwarf. It's a, it's a small star in comparison to other stars. For instance, the star Betelgeuse has a diameter of 100 million miles which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. And the Son of God created all things. He created the universe. Or consider the order of the universe, the creation's design. Scientists speak of the anthropic principle. You, you're familiar with that anthropos, man, anthropology. Well, there's the anthropic principle which states that the universe appears to be carefully designed for the welfare of humankind. That's what scientists say. Yet a change, get this, a change in the Earth's rotation around the sun, just one small change would be disastrous. The Earth would become either too hot or it would become too cold to be inhabited. Also, if the moon were nearer to the earth, massive tides would flood the entire world. And the Son of God created that. What a glorious Christ. What a glorious God we worship. That's what Paul is doing. He's awakening us from our spiritual slumbers. And note in the second part of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. So not only is he the agent and the artisan of all things, he's the aim. He's the purpose for which all things were created. He stands at the beginning of the universe and he stands at the end as its goal. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that God's purpose was to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ and we need to hear this because this age of, of sin and death 
seduces us into believing this world is about us. And it's not. And that's why our pursuits and our affections and our concerns tend to be focused on temporal vanities rather than earthly or eternal things. But that mentality, given verse 16, is an insurrection against God. It's an insurrection against the Lord Jesus Christ. I read an article recently about the implosion of the Beatles. Paul, John, Ringo, and George. And Paul McCartney said these words, We had been the Beatles, which was marvelous. There was a feeling of, yeah, it's great to be famous. It's great to be rich. But what's it all for? It had come up empty for them. That's why they imploded. You know, that's Ecclesiastes. It's striving after the wind. It's living life under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says it's vanity of vanities. You know, many, the testimonies are unlimited. Many have experienced all that the world has to offer, and they've come to that very conclusion. What's it all for? Now, why is that? Because Christ is the end. Christ is the goal of creation, which means nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will work. That truth is undefeated. That's what Paul is telling us here. Notice as well in verse 6, 17, not only is he the end and the goal, he's also preexistent, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And so verse 17 here emphasizes both Jesus' existence prior to creation, and it was an eternal existence, but also his primacy over all the creation as the agent of its existence. Indeed, all things, get this, hold together in Christ. He is the sustaining agent of the universe. All things hold together in him. Now, this would have been deeply encouraging to the people of Colossae. Why is that? Because historians tell us that there was a massive earthquake that hit Colossae somewhere around 60 to 61 A.D. Paul likely wrote this letter in 62 A.D. Uh, from a jail, from prison. And so they were experiencing catastrophic loss as he is writing this letter to them. You know, when Nate was three years old, my oldest son, he came down to our bedroom early one morning and woke us up. And of course, Seth was a baby, and so we weren't getting much sleep as it was. So early that morning, he woke us up, and it really irritated both Heather and me. And, and we asked him, son, why would you wake us up this early? And he said, my, my room was shaking. We thought that was the lamest excuse that we'd ever heard. Your room was shaking. That's insane. Well, the next morning I got up. I was teaching at the seminary, and I got to class, and they were talking about the earthquake that hit Louisville, April of 08. I called home, and Heather said, did you hear about the earthquake? I said, yes. She said, I just saw it on the news. 
she felt so bad about not believing Nate. She said, Nate, were you scared? We finally got sensitive. <laughs> and this is the power of the word. He had just memorized a verse at a Wanant church. Nate, were you scared? He said, no, Mom. Even the wind and the waves obey him. From the mouth of babes. That, that's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. To know that Jesus is sustaining the Son of God who is the image of God, is sustaining all things by his power, should give us all confidence in this broken world. Paul is restoring the awe here. That's what he's seeking to do in Colossae, lest they continue to drift. One more thing. Don't think that Jesus, the Son of God, is doing this statically or arbitrarily. He is moving creation to a consummation point where every foe will be vanquished and the entire world will be under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we see this in verse 18. We've seen that he is supreme in creation. Paul also says he's supreme in the new creation. Notice with me in verse 18. He says, and he is the head of the body. The church. Now, why do I say new creation? Well, that's exactly what the church is. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is the head of the body. This, the church is the beginning stages, the first fruits of the new creation project that Jesus is heading, that he is heading up. He is, the, he is supreme in the new creation. Now, this was... This truth in verse 18, if I could get personal for a moment, he is the head of the body, the church. I can't tell you how comforting that was for me during the year of the pandemic. I don't know if this happened at Lakeview. I haven't heard much about what happened here during the pandemic, but I know our church experienced a lot of turmoil. And there were a lot of churches experiencing turmoil. On top of that, in Louisville, there, were all kinds of, there was all kinds of chaos Houses and, and buildings were being burned. People were being shot. Cars were being vandalized and hijacked. It was a horrifying time. Things looked completely out of control. And then in the church, there was unrest. There was unusual, inordinate division, not only in our church, but in all the other churches in Louisville. And I meditated on this reality in spite of present appearances. Christ is head. He is the head of the church. He is the authority. He is sovereign over his church. And he has made his promises that he will build his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Which means a pandemic will not prevail against it. But some believers, and sometimes that includes me, we seem to act as if Jesus as head is only an honorary title. And it doesn't inform the way we trust him. Last week, Queen Elizabeth II made huge news because she attended the Ascot horse race in England. 
And, and this, these articles said that she has been going to that horse race for seven decades. And last year was the first time in seven decades that she was not able to attend the Ascot horse race. And this year she was finally able to attend again. But Queen Elizabeth's presence at that horse race had no effect on that race. It had zero effect. You see, when it comes to the daily operations and the administration of her country, she plays very little role. In many ways, her, her title is a title of honor, mainly honor. But it doesn't really have a a deep impact on the welfare of the country. That's not the case with Christ. He is the head of the body, which means he has all authority on his church. Now, the word church here, he's probably referring to the universal church. But let, let's just submit this to you, and I know Brother Al has said this many times. The emphasis in the New Testament is on the local church. In fact, the word church is found 114 times in the New Testament, at least 92 of those times. It's referring to the local assembly. Let's personalize this. He is the head of Lakeview Baptist Church. He can be trusted to govern Lakeview. He can be trusted to direct, provide protect and resource Lakeview Baptist Church because he is Lakeview's head. And this head body imagery also communicates that ground zero of his activity in this present age is the local church. Which means if you are a Christian, let me say this, maybe you're visiting. Unless I sound harsh, this was me for many years. If you are a Christian and you are not immersed in a local church, don't make my mistake. Don't have such a low view of the body that you fail to engage. He is the head of the body. This is the locus. This is the place, the ground zero of his operations. So if you're a Christian, God has called you to be immersed in the life of a, of a local church. You think about the one another commands in the New Testament. There's like a hundred of them. Love one another, rejoice one another, uh, restore one another. There's all kinds of one another's. All of those are assuming membership in a local church. You can't command them or, or obey those, in other words, if you're not immersed in a local church. It also means that if you are a Christian and you're a member of a church, God has called you to be immersed by using your gifts he is the head of the church. That's where he is primarily at work. He's the start, in other words. He's the head of a new world that he's ushering in. Indeed, he's the pilot project of this world. Notice in the second part of verse 18. This passage is loaded. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's interesting that the Son of God here, who is the image of God, is also the beginning. Again, Paul is echoing the opening words of Genesis 1, in the beginning. But here, he's not referring to the original creation. 
He's referring to the new creation that Jesus has ushered in by his resurrection. Do you know that when Jesus Christ was raised from the grave and he was raised bodily in time and space, Paul says that the corruptible was swallowed up by the incorruptible. He says the immortal swallowed up mortality. He's using new creation language. So when Jesus was raised from the grave, he inaugurated the new creation. And then he ascended to the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer and the power of the new age was unleashed on the world. And that power continues to be unleashed so that there will be time for unbelievers to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Why? Notice at the end of verse 18 that in all things, notice that refrain, all things, all things, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That he may have the preeminence. Though Jesus has been exalted, and his his exaltation consists in his being raised from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he rules by his spirit, though he has been exalted and has been installed as Lord over all, it's also true that most of the world does not recognize yet his rule. We all recognize that. And so Jesus rules the church, and he rules through his church by his spirit and by his word with the purpose of bringing all things underneath his rule. In other words, Jesus' resurrection wasn't intended to affect just a corner of the cosmos. No. The fruit of his resurrection was to reverberate to every nook and cranny of the created order. And that's why Lakeview majors in the Great Commission. That's why Lakeview does the Great Commission. As Brother Al has often said, from the neighborhood to the nations. So that the world will recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That in all things, he might be preeminent. That's the purpose of creation. That's the purpose of redemption. That's our purpose. He is supreme in creation. He's supreme in the new creation. That's because, and that brings us to verse 19, he is sufficient in his person. He is sufficient in his person. Look with me in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when God the Son, the eternal Son of God, eternally generated from the Father, the only begotten Son, when God the Son became a human, he put on human flesh, the fullness of divine nature became flesh. That's awe-inspiring. It's remarkable. Yet without ceasing to be divine. He never ceased to be divine when he put on human flesh. So the divine nature and the human nature is united in one person. That is Jesus Christ. 
It's what theologians call the hypostatic union. Before the incarnation, the Son of God was the fullness of God. But now, he is the fullness of God bodily. He is worthy of our worship, Paul is saying. You might envision Jesus saying it this way. I hate to put words in his mouth, but I think he would agree with this. I am now what I always was, God. I am now what I once was not, man. I am now and forever, both, God and man. In one person, the Son of God. And so verse 19 tells us that nothing of God's fullness is lacking in the Son of God. In other words, he is sufficient in his person. Therefore, he is sufficient in his work. And that brings us to verse 20, last part of our passage. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The need for reconciliation between God and creation, what does that imply? It implies something horrific, doesn't it? It implies a gigantic rupture has taken place when sin entered the world. The curse came on the created order. And therefore, futility and decay are the hallmarks of the created order now. We know that from Romans 8. Futility and decay and hostility and evil are the hallmarks of his image bearers. That's even sadder. That's the fruit of sin entering the world. And Paul is saying Jesus has come to fix the broken things. He's come to make the sad things come untrue. All things. Now, is this a statement of universalism so that everything in the creation created order is going to be saved? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, he says in Colossians 2 that the, the devil and his demons were conquered by the cross. He triumphed over them. He disarmed the principalities and powers and triumphed over them. And in Colossians 3, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. Because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So this is not a claim of universalism. God's not going to save everyone. But in this day of reconciliation, what it does tell us is that all the opposing forces to the kingdom of God will be ultimately brought in submission, in defeat, to the Son of God. That's what he's saying. Everything that pushes back on the kingdom of God will ultimately be defeated. Indeed, all evil will be excluded from heaven. Revelation 21, verse 8. All evil, all impurity, all rebellion. And yet for the repentant, for those that behold Jesus in repentance and faith, most of us here this morning, for the repentant, no matter your sins, reconciliation. That's what he says in verse 21. We don't have time to go into verse 21. It's another sermon for another day, but reconciliation. 
You were alienated and hostile in your mind by evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you through the body of his flesh, through death. In the death of Christ, he satisfied the wrath of God on sin, restoring those who were in rebellion to God. And that's what makes this passage so important to us. It's so important to us because it's in musing upon Jesus and his work that enthralls us and restores our awe. The Apostle Paul is on an all-rescue mission. That's what he's after. He's on an all-rescue mission. And that's what we need as Christians far above all other applications. You know, we live in a pragmatic age, and so for us, we want action points. We want principles for living. We want steps to obey. And all of those things are important. But the most important application of this passage is to behold. That's what Paul is after, you know. Psalm 115, verse 8. And the psalmist says the same thing in Psalm 135, verse 18. Says, we become what we behold. We become like what we behold. Uh, in those particular texts, uh, the, the people of God have created idols that they're worshiping. And the psalmist says they become like their idols. There's power in beholding, even sometimes negative power. For example, in the Old Testament, Israel repeatedly turned to idols. The Old Testament is apologetic for, for the Messiah. We need a Messiah. We, we need a king that's better even the best of kings in Israel, David. We need a leader that's better than Moses. We need a father better than Abraham. That's, the Old Testament is preparing us for the Messiah. But they repeatedly turned to the idols. And the scripture shows them becoming like what they worship. So for instance, just a couple of examples. In Exodus 32, when they create that golden calf, God comes to them and he calls them stiff-necked, like a stubborn cow. He describes them like a stubborn cow, the very thing they had created. You are stiff-necked. How about 2 Kings 17, 15? Where it is said of Israel, they went after false idols and became false. They became false. They became like what they were committed to. We become like what we behold. That's a principle that you can't get away from. We become like what we worship. Bob Thune, in a wonderful work called Becoming Like What We Worship, gives some examples. He says, when we worship power, we become harsh. We become demanding. When we worship human approval, and we've all been there, haven't we? We become anxious and fearful and paranoid. When we worship success, we become people who overwork. And we don't know anything about rest. And when we worship material things, it makes us greedy it makes us stingy. The more we turn our gaze from Jesus 
to Jesus' replacements, the more ungodly we become. Conversely, to become godly, and this is a word to every Christian, to become godly, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, listen to this, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. See that? The only application there he gives is beholding. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's by beholding our Lord that we are transformed into his image. But here's the question as we close. It's an important question. Does beholding simply happen? Does it happen by osmosis? Well, in one sense, it's a gift. For us to behold our God is a gift. It's a work of the Spirit. And so it is a grace to behold the living God. But in another sense, it's a task. Because we're not robots. We play a role. The psalmist gives us a wonderful example in Psalm 16. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Isn't that a wonderful example? I have set the Lord always before me. So let's close with three aspects to this setting the Lord before us. Three aspects to our responsibility in beholding our God, which is the principal agent of transformation. First of all, And again, I get this from Bob Thune, but I have alliterated it to make it easier to remember. First of all, we need to dwell daily and often upon the Lord's greatness, the Lord's worth, the Lord's work, supremely revealed in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. You cannot have a closed Bible and behold God. You have to open your Bible and dwell upon His all-sufficiency. You dwell upon Him. Make it a daily habit. Second, you declare. You declare the Lord's worth. You declare the Lord's work through praise. Do people know you as a a person of praise? Through thanksgiving. Do people know you as a grateful person? Through song. That's one of the things that we have always had family devotions as a family. And one of my regrets, and I told Heather yesterday, we've got to raise our game. As we've not sung as a family, as we should. Paul says, though, that the spirit-filled life involves song. He says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to a debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. We have that responsibility to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, always giving thanks to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the means by which we behold Him, living a life of praise, living a life of thanksgiving. We should be known more for our praise and our gratitude than our complaints. And I speak that to me first. 
Third, not only are we to dwell and declare, we are to display the Lord's worth by our acts of service. It begins in the local church. Paul says, do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. As a Christian, where are you serving? God has given every Christian spiritual gifts to edify the body. And it's in using those gifts to edify the body and using your gifts to serve your neighbor that you display that Jesus is your true treasure. He is your true treasure. And it's by that act you become to treasure him more. Indeed, these are means of beholding. But I also recognize, even though this letter was written to Christians, that unbelievers are eavesdropping on a sheep feeding. Even though Paul is writing this to Christians, he also recognizes there will be unbelievers in the church at Colossae, in the church at Lakeview. And I want to just remind you of verse 20. Jesus is going to reconcile all things. And for those who are not in submission to him, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. It means you're going to be brought underneath his feet in subjection and defeat. And that is bad news for those who don't believe. It's bad news. Now you say, well, you sound very narrow-minded. I'm not narrow-minded, but truth is always narrow. That is bad news for those who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus, but it doesn't have to be. And so as our worship team comes forward, uh, I, I want you to know, and, and this is something I had to hear, I've had to communicate this to so many people through the years, because one of the ways the devil will deceive you is two ways, we looked at this last week, just... He will first deceive you into thinking you don't need Jesus. It's all going to turn out in the end well. Well, that's, that's deception. On the flip side, and he does this often, he will deceive you into thinking that there's no way your sins could be forgiven. There's no way your sins could be forgiven because you have committed sins that no one on earth knows but you. And if anyone knew your private thoughts and your motivations of the heart, they would... They would not even want to spend time with you. They, want to, they wouldn't want to be with you. And the scripture says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Why? Because Jesus has come to reconcile sinners to himself. He took every sin that could possibly be committed, and he took it on the cross. And God's judgment was poured out on the substitute, so it doesn't have to be poured out on you. That's the good news of the gospel. And maybe you have questions about what that means. We'd love to talk to you as we stand and sing this time of response.